Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me best-selling author and award-winning author, um, award-winning podcaster, and GM extraordinaire, Dan Wells. Uh, Dan is the author of a multiple um, variety of, of novels. Um, I, I don't know what the most famous one is, but the, the first one released was the Don Cleaver series, the I Am Not a Serial Killer. Um, he has done The Partials um, and... and couple more plus some standalone novels he um like i said a, a podcaster with two podcasts writing excuses and um intentionally blank with brandon sanderson dan thank you so much for getting on with me today go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself well my name is dan wells and thank you very much for having me on uh i'm excited to be here glad we finally worked it out um me too i uh is, i am not a serial killer is for sure uh, my most popular book, in addition to being the very first one. Uh, that's the one that uh, continues to sell the best. That's the one that was made into a movie. Uh, that's the one that there is a potential TV series that I shouldn't say any more about than just that. Uh, there's a thing going on right now. Uh, so, yeah. Um, the other big series that I have right now that I, I don't think you mentioned is Zero G, which is my middle grade science fiction stuff. Uh, originally on Audible, we now have print versions of them. And uh, Netflix just bought that one. Oh, nice. Or is in the process of, of buying it. The, the contracts have been finalized and they just haven't sent them to us to sign yet. Uh, so that's very cool and exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. So I want to talk to you let's let's go back to the beginning i know on your website you said that um kind of you know star wars introduced at a young age you said you were four months old you probably don't remember that but uh your dad your dad read the hobbit um at, at six years old and at a very young age you decided to become an author um i know when i talked to, to dave wolverton um, i interviewed him and you took his class in college uh what point in college was that was that your freshman year or a little bit later on no, that was um, my second year of college. I served a, a mission for the LDS Church uh, in between freshman and sophomore year. Came back in sophomore year and essentially convinced that I was not going to uh, waste my time on writing. That, that I had to get a real job <laughs> somewhere. Um, and and then as a nice little present for myself, decided to take that class. And the very first thing he said on the very first day of the class was, you can make a living as an artist, which no one had ever told me in my whole life. And uh, Dave uh, really changed uh, the trajectory of my life uh, entirely. Uh, and I have you know, immense respect and friendship for him. He's wonderful. No, he told me that there was three students in that class who he thought was going to make it. And one, unfortunately, did. Um, but but two, you know, you and somebody else, you very successful, um, did make it. Yes. Um, now, in college, um, as, as a writer, as an artist, sometimes you, you surround yourself with like-minded people. Um, what Did you have a writing group, a consistent writing group at that time? Yeah. Um, we actually, because of that class with Dave, formed a writing group, uh, me and three of my friends. Um, two of them were mostly just readers or casual writers. They've gone on to become computer programmers. The fourth person in that writing group is the other person that Dave mentions who made it big, which is Brandon Sanderson. Right. And he and I have been uh, friends ever since. I am now uh, one of the vice presidents of his company and will be writing Cosmere books uh, with him in addition to my own stuff. And so, yeah, way back, way back. This was in uh, 1998. We started that writing group and we started working together. Uh, we would share our, write, our writing with each other. We would go to conventions together to try to meet editors and agents and network and and we've been working together ever since. Though so now, as of a month ago, officially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention that you became uh, vice president of narration at Dragon Steel, so congratulations. But I have a question of that. I know uh, Brandon, um, and this isn't about Brandon, it's about you. 
he his first book, Elantris, came out in 2005. Yeah, um, I am not a serial killer. Didn't come out until 2009. Is that, um, is that right? It was I either it eight in, or nine. Uh, I know but it came, came out, out in Europe, Europe first. Uh, first, it came out in Europe about a year earlier, uh, both mm-hmm. the UK and Germany. Um, but we sold the U.S. rights first, and then they just delayed the release because they wanted to do this uh, special release pattern where they um, put out the entire trilogy back to back in like uh, I think five or six months apart. So um, that's why that's why it came out in Europe first because they were willing to just put the books out um, as soon as they were written instead of waiting for the whole trilogy and then releasing them as a set, which is essentially what Tor did in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, the, the initial publication was 2008, although I believe uh, in the U.S. it was 2009. Either way, uh, Brandon and I had the same editor, Moshe Fetter, at Tor, and we met him at the same time. I actually am the one who introduced him to Brandon, um, but the book I was shopping at the time was not very good. <laughs> so he bought Brandon's and uh, did not buy mine for three more years. Well, here, here's my question about that. As somebody who's participating in a writing group and somebody's, um, you know, somebody else, not yours, books kind of take off. Um, a natural thing is to, to might feel jealousy or uh, maybe discouragement at that, you know, when is my stuff going to get picked up? Um, how did you get through that? Uh, did you feel any of that? Or did you just kind of have a, a, an inkling that you were going to get through that and that you were going to make it? Well, I I joke a lot about um, how I get really sick of people talking about Brandon all the time. It doesn't actually bother me. He's an incredibly close friend and I love him and I'm very happy for all of his success. Uh, but aside from those jokes that I make, um I have I've never had any actual sincere uh, jealousy or or ill will. Um, and most of that is just I'm an incredibly confident person. <laughs> so <laughs> it never occurred to me um, early on uh, that I was not going to sell. When he sold a book, all that meant to me was, oh, clearly this is possible. Obviously, it's going to happen to me, too. Um I did have a moment a few years later uh, when we were all published and I went out to dinner with Brandon, Brandon Mull, and James Dashner. And the three of them were all huge mega bestsellers and I was, you know, dinking along on the bottom end of the mid list and came away from that dinner incredibly discouraged. For some reason hanging out with the three of them, listening to them talk about the successes they had had really made me think, well, I'm just wasting my time. If I'm not the mega bestseller that these three are, then what am I even doing? Which is a stupid thing to think, but that's what I thought. And I went home that night essentially convinced that I needed to quit writing and go back and get a real job. And then I thought to myself, oh, if I'm not a self-employed artist anymore i'll have enough time to pick up a hobby that'll be fun what kind of hobby should i get and the only thing that came to mind was writing books <laughs> <laughs> and that's when i realized oh i'm not doing this for money i'm doing this because i love it uh and so there was that one night where i had this crisis of faith and other than that um i have never really been bothered by the larger success of other people of friends I hang out with uh, I am I am delighted for everybody who is able to to sell books everyone who wants to be a professional author and makes it makes me happy that's awesome because it could be a natural thing like somebody's in a writing group and for whatever reason their book isn't selling and somebody else a number of people in their writing group so do you have any advice for those people um well First of all, I think that it is important for writers to make sure that their goals are clear in their own mind. Just like the story I just told about myself, really ask yourself why you are writing. Is your goal to be a bestseller? Is your goal to be studied in AP English classes? Or is your goal simply to write books because you love it? 
Uh, maybe all you want is to see your name on a cover. Maybe all you want is something you can give to your friends and family for their birthday. Or maybe you simply just enjoy doing it. Uh, I've got a lot of neighbors who get together uh, every, I think it's Wednesday morning to play basketball uh, before they go to work. And nobody in talking to them says, oh, you play basketball in the mornings? It's too bad you're a failed NBA player. Because that's not how we think of it, right? They're playing basketball because they love it. And the fact that they're not in the NBA playing professionally is not regarded as a failure. And I think that we need to change the way we think about art as well. You can do it because you love it. Uh, and that is absolutely a worthy and honorable goal. And if you just love writing stories or books or whatever, you don't have to sell those or make a living on those in order to make that a worthwhile expenditure of your time and energy. Um, that said, if when you do this, you know, inventory of your own goals and, and desires, and you realize what you really do want to do is be a professional author. At that point, you just got to put in a lot of effort. Um, there is no magical system or key or hint that is more valuable or more effective than write a lot and you'll get better at it. Uh, and that is what all writing classes eventually boil down to. I can teach you and on my podcast I do. And when I teach at conferences, I will say, here's a bunch of tools you can try and maybe they'll work for you and maybe they won't. And there's an entire, you know, instructional industry based around that. But ultimately, every bit of writing advice boils down to write a whole lot and you'll get better at it. And maybe that takes you 30 years. Maybe it takes you three years. Um, for me, it was six finished books, finished and written um, before number six was finally good enough. Brandon Sanderson, one of the most successful fantasy artists in the entire world, he wrote 13 books before one of those books was good enough to sell. And so if you are willing to put in that time and that effort, then I do believe that inevitably you are going to be able to sell something. Uh, but often what that comes down to is, like I said, write a whole lot and you'll get better at it. But also um, allow yourself to write a bad book. Uh, one thing that I see a lot and that I try to counsel people against is the quote unquote golden idea. Uh, this is especially common for fantasy authors. They'll say, I've got this incredible story. I've been working on it for years and I'm just, you know, I'm on my 27th draft of it and I'm going to make it perfect. No, you're not. That book sucks. And you need to accept the fact that it sucks and move on. Um, it is very important for you to, when you are trying to learn a new skill, when you are trying to perfect a talent like this, to try new things. And endlessly noodling on one book is not going to teach you how to write a second book. You need to finish it. You need to accept the fact that it is imperfect. And then you need to move on to the next thing. You are always going to have more and better ideas. You don't need to hold on to that golden idea that you've had since high school. Move on. You can tell yourself. It's not true. But you can tell yourself that you'll go back later when you're better and you'll pick it up again and you'll rewrite it. I actually have done that with one of my books. Um, but for the most part, you have to be willing to move on, to write the end and to save the file and to put in a folder somewhere and then start a new project, a new different thing that is going to stretch different muscles and exercise different parts of your writing talent and really let yourself learn new things. That's great advice, especially the, the moving on part, you know, you you initially wanted to become like epic fantasy author. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard. I mean, I've I've actually we've met like multiple times throughout the years, and I've listened to uh, to writing excuses since two thousand eight. We met initially um, right before your book for, came out. I am not a serial killer. Um, Ltue, I think. Awesome. You, you gave a presentation. I absolutely. 
am rem- I don't remember that. No, but I'm going to pretend like I do. And that no, you don't remember that at all. And I don't expect you to. <laughs> no, you gave a presentation about outlining and you used the seven step uh, formula. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to you. You started out wanting to be a uh, an epic fantasy writer. That's not where your first book um, was. It wasn't technically an epic fantasy. Um, when you're pursuing ideas, um, when you know, like you said, there's not a golden idea. Like there's there's multiple ideas. When you're brainstorming and pursuing ideas, how do you know or or what do you look for um, for ideas to know when to pursue them? Like, okay, that's that's something that I want to pursue and look at. Um, so I've got a, a whole process that I go through, uh, a fairly nebulous process of how to develop an idea into a story. <clears throat> and whether, usually for me, and, and I suspect for most people, but at least for me, um, when I have an idea, the first thing that I think about the, the most valuable second step. Say I, I've got an idea that's very cool. Um, that idea will form in one of two ways. It'll either be a character that I think is really interesting and I want to tell stories about them. That's where John Cleaver came from. Or second, it will be an idea that I think is really cool and I want to, to explore that idea. Uh, that's where my cyberpunk series came from, uh, my standalone extreme makeover um, about... Uh, hand lotion that can clone your DNA. Uh, those were idea stories. So you whether whether it starts with an idea or it starts with a character, that second step is what problems can this cause? Uh, how can this idea cause pain in someone's life? Or how can this person be put into pain that will be interesting? So looking immediately for points of pain, for points of conflict, for points of uh, you know moral compromise or tricky decisions, uh, those kinds of conflicts are where I go. And if there's a really compelling answer to that, that's usually the sign for me that this is an idea that is worth following up on. And so ideas, you know, people will often ask, where do you get your ideas? And that's such a boring question because. The answer for a professional author is, where do you not get ideas? Ideas are everywhere. If you train yourself to come up with them, uh, they will be absolutely everywhere all around you all the time. Um, So once you can take that idea and find the compelling story element about it, that for me is the sign of, oh, okay, I know where to go with this now. I am in the process right now. I was invited to a cyberpunk anthology uh, and they specifically wanted a story using my uh, cherry dog characters from the blue screen series. And so I, you know, and I love those characters. I would write books about them for the rest of time if it was financially viable. <laughs> so that I it was very happy to go back. And I, I started kind of poking around um, you know, I wanted an idea that was small enough to fit comfortably in a short story, but that was still compelling and exciting for me. And I had this idea about um, this kind of uh, one, one of the things in the world is that everyone has a computer inside their head. And I thought it would be interesting if there was some kind of malware or virus that could get into that and accidentally create a form of shared consciousness. And that was a compelling idea, but I had to, you do that second step, right? Which is, well, how is this going to cause pain or conflict in somebody's life? Uh, How do I turn the idea into a story? And for me, it came down eventually to um, the idea that that virus would be spread through a specific building, which in this case was a rest home where the main character's grandmother, uh, they, they had to check her into this rest home. She'd been living with their her family forever, but now it was time she needed uh, 24-hour care. And that was the piece. That was the character element that suddenly made this painful and personal to the main character instead of just a fun science fiction idea. And so that's when I knew, oh, okay, I actually do have a story that I can tell. 
that's great advice. And anybody listening or watching, like that's a, a golden nugget that Dan just shared. Now, um, Dan, you you taught at LTUE a long time ago, 13 or 14 years ago. I can't remember exactly the year about the the seven step outline uh, that you that you used back then uh, that you stole from uh, Star Trek RPG. Yes. Um, do you still use that? I do still use that. Uh, I actually plotted a story yesterday, and uh, uh, I use it a lot. Um, I, I say that I stole it from the Star Trek RPG. They stole it from just Hollywood TV writing. It's a very common TV writing structure, which is why the Star Trek game used it, because it's based on a TV show. Uh, and so really, neither of us stole it. We are just perpetuating a very useful tool that has been around forever. Um, I have taken most of my structural and outlining tools from Hollywood and from television. And so the two that I use, even still 15 years later, uh, I use seven point structure, which is a, you know, how to build a, a TV episode basically is what it is. And I use Hollywood formula, which is a, um, there, there's, different expandable sizes of what Hollywood formula is, but at its core, it's uh, just three questions and three characters. And when you figure out what those are, then it helps you to kind of see the form of a story. And so I still use those two things for absolutely everything that I write. That's awesome. And for those who haven't seen that or don't know what that is, um, there's a video series on YouTube. I'll try to remember to, to link a comment or link the, the, the YouTube videos in the comments. Um, so, you know, what, what is a day in the life of, of Dan? Like, what are some of your writing habits? How do you maintain balance? I mean, you have family with six kids. Um, how do how do you, I mean, you, you literally have a, a couple podcasts that you do. You run a, a Twitch stream every week. Um, I used or, to, the, used the to. Twitch stream is gone. Oh. Um, so, uh, I don't know. Uh, the answers that I used to give for all of this stuff are changing because my life is changing, right? Um, I have six kids, but the two oldest have moved out. One of them's married. They're, uh, both of them are in college. And so I've only got four at home. And the two oldest were the hard ones. And so the <laughs> have I have four kids at home, but it feels like having you know two kids at home. It's so easy. <laughs> um, and I love all of my kids, even the old ones. And they know that they're the hard ones. Um, so different. So first of all, this is my home office. Anyone who's watching the video can see that door back there. Uh, the kids know that they are not allowed to open that door. If the door is open, they come in and talk to me constantly. But if it's closed, they're very good at, oh, dad's at work. He doesn't count right now. Um, we will we will solve our problems on our own or we will wait for him or for mom. Um, and so that is just something that we've, you know, trained into the kids. And, and you know, I've been full-time writer for 14 years. And so of the ones living at home, none of them can actually remember a time when I had a real job. So this is just standard operating procedure for everyone in the house. Um, also, um, I mentioned earlier uh, my, that, that I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, last year, or earlier this year, I don't even remember, it's been so long, um, I uh, was called as a member of the bishopric, uh, which is basically, for those who don't know, it is a, a layman, a lay clergy position, uh, where I have a ton of extra stuff that I have to do now, which is why the Twitch stream eventually got canceled, because I wasn't able to keep that up. Uh, I don't know how many people, I don't know, church-wide, how many P, how, how many bishopric members had to cancel their D and D Twitch stream uh, <laughs> when they got called? But I'm I'm sure I can't be the only one. Um, and then also, as mentioned earlier, about a month ago, I was uh, I, I officially became the vice president of narrative of Dragonsteel Entertainment. And so now, for the first time in 14 years, I do have a full time, actual paycheck, real job, uh, which is very strange to me. Uh, and so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I work from home in this office. Thursday and Friday, I drive down to uh, Dragonsteel and I work there in that office. 
and I am working for Dragonsteel full time all five of those days, but two of them are on site and three of them are remote. Uh, and so that is a huge adjustment for me um, in terms of what my life is like. Uh, right now, it's about one in the afternoon at the time of this recording, and I'm still in my pajamas uh, in my office, just, you know, doing my own thing and nobody comes through the door. And that's what I've become very accustomed to. And now I have 14 years later, I have to get used to having coworkers again uh, for the first time. And uh, people who, you know, have legitimate business reasons to interrupt me during the day, um, even just walking out of my office at Dragonsteel to go and get lunch is, has been an adjustment for me because I have this mindset of, oh, I'm not going to go out there. I can hear voices and I don't want to get pulled into a conversation. And I've had to tell myself, nope, that's the point. That's why I'm on site is to be able to talk to everyone else and work, you know, well with people. And so uh, I, I have to start exercising a lot of, uh, a lot of office job muscles uh, that I haven't had to use for a very long time. And it's been a big adjustment for me. And, you know, Crimea River, obviously, that's such an obnoxious thing to complain about. And I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing out it, it, it was really surprising to me uh, how difficult it was to get back into that mindset, that kind of office job, working with a group of people instead of just working from home on my own. Uh, has been a big adjustment for me. So, so in the beginning, like what was some of your habits? Like how, like, did you set goals to like, all right, I want to write 2000 words or whatever. And, and what kind of things do you do now to kind of stay productive? I mean, you have a, you obviously took that, that vice president job at Dragonstone Entertainment. So I, I don't know what that job entails, but perhaps your, your personal books that you're trying to come out might've taken a, a step back. Like, what does that entail? Yeah, so um, I do, I don't really mandate a word count for myself um, because I am not always certain what I'm going to be doing on a given day. Uh, sometimes my job, like right now, I, uh, I am in the middle of revising a book. Uh, Brandon and I co-wrote a book before I joined his company. And actually that's most of the reason why I joined his company because we co-wrote a book and we both really loved it. And we both loved the process of working together and decided to formalize the relationship. So I wrote that book at home on my own. And then now as you know, an employee of the company, I am revising that book. And revising is a completely different uh, timescale and a completely different uh, type of work than uh, composing in the first place. Right. So normally when writing, I try, I aim for 4,000 words in a day. Uh, but if I hit 2000, I am happy. Uh, sometimes I can do four, sometimes I can do five. My biggest writing day of all time was like 7,500 words. I've never <laughs> equaled that again. Um, it is much more typically around 3,000 words. I aim for four to try to stretch myself and, and consider myself lucky. Sometimes I can hit five pretty, if I have a good outline to work on, I can hit 5,000 words in a day pretty consistently, but four is the goal. Um, when I'm revising, it's entirely different. Uh, oh, yeah. It is important, it, it is more important to get the make the work good than to have a lot of work done. And so, you know, depending on how it goes, if there's a chapter that is already in pretty good shape, then a quick polish through and I can get, you know, five or six chapters done in a day easily, sometimes more than that. Um, if there's a chapter that needs a lot of work because of the nature of whatever revision we're doing, uh, I might have to rewrite a bunch of it from scratch or I might have to you know, add a new character to it or take a character out or change the focus or there's lots of different things that might need to be done. Uh, and so sometimes I'll get half a chapter done in a day because uh, you know, I'm not in slap the words down on the page mode. I'm in make these words as good as possible mode. Right. And so 
because I'm doing that revision right now, I don't have as clear of daily goals, but I do have my long-term goal, which is I want to finish this revision by the end of the year. That is a stupidly ambitious goal and I'm not going to hit it, <laughs> but that is what I am trying to do. Um, so we'll see. Uh, this revision in particular is going to be difficult because uh, the book's called Dark One. I've got about 120, I want to say, 120,000 words written. Um, and that's the revision. And then we want to add 50 or 60,000 words to the end of it. Uh, basically add a third act to the story mm -hmm. and expand it by 50% or so. Um, that is going to take a while. Uh, but I'm focusing on that revision first and we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I keep not really answering your, what is my daily life like <laughs> question? Um, I have learned over 14 years of working from home full time, uh, that I work best in the afternoon in terms of writing actual prose writing. Uh, that's just the time of day that is best for me. And that is something that uh, you know, it is a it is a luxury in some ways to have enough time to know that about myself. Not everyone has a full day to work with. To whatever extent it is possible for aspiring writers, uh, I encourage you to figure out what time of day is most productive for different types of work, because that is absolutely a real and known principle. And a lot of, you know, workplace psychologists and things will, will uh, you know, figure this out. And consultants will often try to get corporations to, you know, figure out for each employee, when are they most productive? Uh, for me, it's in the afternoon. And so in the morning, uh, which is when we actually scheduled this interview, and then I missed it because I didn't look at my calendar. Uh, that is when I try to do non-writing stuff is in the morning. That's when I'll answer emails. That's when I will do interviews. That's when I will do other kinds of stuff so that then I have the afternoon free because I know that I can be most productive uh, during that time. One thing I've also learned is that if I can write for two or three hours and then take a break to do something else, like usually for me, it is playing a video game for 30 or 40 minutes and then go back into writing um, that makes me much more productive because it is recharging the batteries or it is refilling the creative well or whatever it is doing. If I write for five hours solid, then yeah, 2,000, 2,500 words, something like that. If I write for two hours and play a game and then write for two more hours, 4,000 words easy. Um, just because that's how my brain is most productive. And I've had the time over the years to figure it out. So I try to write in the afternoons. I try to take a break in the middle and do some other productive or creative thing. Um, and that is that is how my workday tends to go. And it's very nice. I think most creatives need that kind of recharge the batteries break in the mm -hmm. middle of their workday, which is why it is so difficult if you work at a creative department for a real corporation your bosses are not creative people. They are money people. Right. Uh, in my old job, we used to call it the suits and the sandals. The suits don't necessarily understand how sandal brains work and vice versa. And so uh, in my very last job, where I was the lead writer and, uh, you know, helping run the creative department, a lot of my job was interfacing between the suits and the sandals and saying, no, he's not wasting time that graphic designer is going to be much more productive if you just let him, you know, do whatever goofy thing he's doing for half an hour and then come back. Uh, you can't just be purely creative for hours on end without a break. That's just not how creativity works. That's some good advice for aspiring uh, writers, aspiring artists in general. Um, not only understanding that um, there's ebbs and flows in the creative process, like, with you right now, there was the the slap words on page, and then now there's the the revision part. 
and then understanding yourself as well. Um, knowing when you're productive or how to get in your most productive state is important for you. It's the right two hours, take a break, right? Another two hours in the afternoon. Some people might be four o'clock in the morning. Some people might be 10 yeah. o'clock at night, but whatever it is, find, be able to, to have a, you know, some people won't be able to play around with those times, right? Cause they have full-time mm -hmm. jobs, but some people I know have full-time jobs. They get up early in the morning and they write. Some people have full-time jobs. They, they write at eight o'clock till midnight or whatever. And then that's the times that you have to play with, you know? Yeah. So that's great. I know, um, I know you moved your family to Germany, uh, soon after, um, I am not a serial killer, um, came out. Um, yep. one of my biggest listeners is from Germany for some reason. Yeah. Cool. Well, hello. Yeah. Um, how, how was that for your family to go over there? I, she spent six months a year. How long did you spend over there? We were there two years. Two years, okay. Uh, 2012 to 2014 and loved it. I would still live in Germany today if it was feasible for me to do so. Uh, we came back in 2014 and we had only really intended to be there for two years anyway. It's, it's not uh, like we were forced back. It was, we knew that it was a temporary adventure that would eventually end. Uh, we came back because... Um, my parents were both fairly ill at the time. My brother was really ill at the time. And uh, so we came back to Utah to live near family on purpose so that we could help people if they needed it. Uh, everyone's doing much better now. Um, so hooray for that. Uh, but also, you know, that was eight years ago. And our kids are, you know, they, it was easy to move in 2012 because they were all little. Even the oldest was still in elementary school. Uh, once your kids get into high school and they start having relationships, they start having jobs, they start, you know, doing, you know, their grades count for college transcripts. Now, all of a sudden, it's much harder to uproot them and take them to a completely different culture and a completely different school system. And so we're basically here in the U.S. again for the foreseeable future. Uh, and I also, I, as much as I would love to, I genuinely would, if it were feasible, I would move to Berlin today. Okay. No question. Uh, but you know, um, two of my kids have moved out and I would like to see them sometimes. And I would like them to be able to visit me without buying transatlantic plane tickets. Uh, so I don't know if I ever will, uh, go back to Europe. Uh, but I loved it. It was a really wonderful experience for the whole family. Um, I try to go back and visit whenever I can, but the most recent time was 2017, which was five years ago. Um, so, yeah. Was, was that a decision based on the success of your books in Europe? Uh, yeah. Uh, so the, the, the short version of the story is that we were living in Orem, Utah at the time. And we bought that house when we had two kids. And by the time we had five kids, we did not fit in it anymore. And we knew we had to move. And we're looking around. We looked at some other places um, in Utah. And then it was my wife who said, you know what? The next house we buy is not going to be our forever house that we live in forever. So if we know it's temporary anyway, why don't we go somewhere cool and have a fun adventure? And I'm like, okay, that sounds awesome. And uh, we eventually settled on Germany primarily because my serial killer books were huge there. All six of the John Cleaver books have been national bestsellers in Germany. It was the biggest market I had. It was the market that enabled me to, to quit my real job and go full-time as an author. Um, it, it was just, it, it was great. And so we, and, and also my wife already spoke German. So that made it an easier transition than it otherwise would have been. It was still difficult. Uh, anyone who does want to move to Europe, I can, you know, find me at a convention and I'll talk you through a lot of the obstacles because there's a lot of obstacles, um, but it was worth it. And we liked it a lot. That's awesome. Now, I am not a serial killer, got made into a movie. Somebody who has sold rights to, you know, a movie studio or, a, you know, Netflix or whatever. What kind of input do you get on that? And, and how much do they, they involve you in that process? 
it depends entirely on the contract that you are able to negotiate. And for the most part, they don't want to give the author any power at all if they don't have to. Um, Shannon Hale, for example, and she's spoken about this publicly, um, when she uh, sold Austin Land, uh, she was able to visit the set just for a couple of days, and they had a chair with her name on it, and she was told to sit in that chair and not to talk to anybody. Um, and so that was her experience with the movie. And, and I think that that's very typical for most authors. Um, you have to be very big, very powerful, very successful in order to force yourself into the writer's room or to get in your contract that you are a producer or that you have script approval or anything like that. With my movie, I did not officially have any of those things, um, but it was a small indie production. The director and I had become very good friends over the course of the six years it took him to raise the money to make the movie. And so even though I had no script approval, I had no creative control, he still sent me the scripts just to get my opinion on them. Uh, I had meetings with, uh, with him, his name is uh, Billy O'Brien, uh, I had meetings with Toby Froud, who was our special effects designer. Um, again, I that is all them being cool rather than me having any like legal <laughs> control over anything. Uh, they involved me when they didn't have to, and I'm very grateful for that. For the most part, there is there's there's nothing like that that most authors get. Uh, the Netflix deal that we uh, are working on. I don't have any creative control with that, which is much more typical. Authors tend to not have any at all. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's sometimes, like I sympathize for Shannon Hell because like, you know, they're, they're making her world real and she mm -hmm. can't do anything about it. And it's got, it's got to be kind of heartbreaking or, or frustrating or stuff like that, you it, know? It, it can be difficult. My philosophy on adaptations has always been that I am more interested in a new and interesting take on the story than in seeing the story recreated 100% faithfully. Um, I would much rather see a new artist's vision of the, of the same idea than to just see something that is exactly like the book I already read. That's why I think the first couple of uh, Harry Potter movies for me at least, are very boring because I've already read that book and the movie is not adding anything new to it. Right. Um, now, that said, that idea, that philosophy was sorely tested when it was suddenly was my book, right? Um, and I had to remind myself constantly every time they would make a decision that was different than the one I would have made, I had to stop and say, you know what? They are good at their jobs. They are interesting artists. That's why I made this deal in the first place. I am just going to shut up and I'm going to let them do what they're good at. And ultimately, uh, the movie they made was great. And, you know, again, not every adaptation gets that. Um, I, I feel incredibly lucky <laughs> that my very first book got a movie and it was good. Uh, that is a, a very uncommon conglomeration of events and so you know had the movie been terrible i'm sure that it might have poisoned me in general against adaptations or or who knows uh but i i think that that is the healthiest way to approach an adaptation is to just kind of leave your hands open leave your mind open and say they are going to make a thing it is similar to my thing but it is not going to be exactly the same as my thing and that's okay that's great advice for people who have sold their rights and and are kind of frustrated that things aren't going exactly what they pictured in their head so that's great advice speaking of advice you've been given advice through writing excuses for a long long time now um what has been some of your um your greatest memories of that because you've met a ton of people 
one of my uh, fondest memories of writing excuses, several years ago, we uh, went to Gen Con, which is the big gaming convention in Indianapolis. And we were able to work out, uh, Howard Taylor and I um, worked with the organizers and said, we're going to do um, some writing excuses episodes. Can you please get us some of the big name guests that are there? And they got um, Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, which are the two authors who collaborate under the name James S.A. Corey to write The Expanse. They wrote the books and they were showrunners uh, for the TV show as well. And uh, big names, and I'm a huge fan of theirs, and we had never met before. And so we were relying entirely on Gen Con to be able to do that for us. Uh, normally when we record and we want guests, it's people that I already know or have met uh, and I ask them personally. So in this case, uh, you know, we got all set up to record and they walked into the room and I went up and introduced myself, you know, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, we won't take much of your time. My name's Dan Wells. And uh, they both stopped and they're like, wait, Dan Wells who wrote, I am not a serial killer. I loved that book. And that like, that is a high that I continue to ride years later uh, of how exciting that was for me to be recognized and respected by someone that I respect in turn. Uh, and that's a lot of what has happened, um, you know, not just with writing excuses, but with, um, you know, the industry in general. I grew up reading Kevin J. Anderson books uh, and now he's a really good friend of mine and we talk all the time. Um, people who, you know, uh, when Mary Robinette Kowal first started publishing and I read her uh, early like short story anthologies and things like that, had a chance to meet her. And now we are very good friends. We work together on the podcast. Um, things like that are so fun for me to be able to gather people whose work I love and then put them together. That's why I do so much event organizing because I love being able to, it's, it's my love of heist movies, I think, of like, I'm going to assemble a super team. I want to put together a writing conference specifically because I love this person's work and that person's work. And, I, I, and I'm going to get them all together and see what we can do. Uh, and so I'm really grateful that Writing Excuses has enabled me to do that. Has there been anybody you haven't met yet that you want to or want on the podcast? <laughs> um, there are absolutely some uh that i would love to get on the podcast and we haven't been able to yet uh nk jemison or jemison we haven't had a chance to get her on the show uh and i'd love to um i i don't know when that's going to happen um but for the most part everyone that i have really set my sights on and tried hard we've been able to grab uh, last year, I read uh, The Greenbone Saga by Fonda Lee, Jade City, Jade War, and Jade Legacy, and loved them, and was like, oh, man, it'd be so great to get Fonda on the show. And then I thought, why don't I just ask her? And so I did. And I found her on Twitter, and I'm like, hey, I love your books. Do you want to be on my podcast? And she's like, oh, I love your podcast. Sure, let's do it. And within a month, uh, we were sitting on a Zoom call, eating lunch together, recording episodes, um, and I, I, uh, am really grateful that I have the ability to, you know, offer something valuable to people that I like so that, you know, I have an excuse to meet them. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fantastic. That's one of the reasons why I do this too, is because I was like, man, there's so many people that I'd like to meet and I know they have interesting stories. So I'm just going to reach out and see who says yes. And so many people have, and it's been wonderful. So thank you again. That's great. No, happy to be here. And thanks for doing it. Do you have any advice for any aspiring new authors? Aspiring I mean, you, new you authors? You already gave so many already. So I already gave a bunch. I mean, that's the, the, the main things that I say is number one, go listen to writing excuses. Um, anything that I could say here, I've already said more intelligently on that show. So <laughs> go listen to it. And, and it's free. So don't worry about that. B, um, what I already said, allow yourself to write a bad book. Um, I love to use the analogy from Ender's Game. There, there's a part towards the end of Ender's Game where Bean stands up in the cafeteria and he says, listen, we are so 
focused on winning that we are not learning anything new. This is a battle school. We are supposed to be learning new strategies. We just have one strategy and we do it over and over again. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. We have to stop trying to win and start just trying new things to see what works and what doesn't. And I think that is such a valuable principle in general, and especially for artists. Stop trying to win. Stop trying to make your books perfect. Stop focus, focusing on making this story sellable. And instead, just try something you haven't tried yet. If you've never written in first person, write in first person uh, just to try it, just to see. Maybe you will hate it and you'll never go back to it. Or maybe you will love it and you'll do it forever. Um, if, you've, if there's a genre you've never tried. For me, it was horror. I wrote so many fantasy novels and then finally was like, you know what? I'm going to write a horror novel. And that's the one that clicked and that's the one that sold. So allow yourself to, to write bad books. Allow yourself to try new things. Um, that is going to be more valuable than just endlessly doing the same battle school strategy over and over again and hoping that this time it'll just magically work. That's awesome. Dan, go ahead and tell everybody how they can get a hold of you. Um, okay. So, yeah. Whatever um, you want. Uh, I online am the Dan Wells. That is my website. That is my email address. That is my Twitter. That is everything. Uh, and so that is the best place to find me. Go to thedanwells.com, sign up for my newsletter. Uh, I will send you, you know, my calendar and uh, I will send you, you know, updates on what I'm writing, what I'm reading right now other art things that I recommend, which are usually video games and TV shows. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, the other place to look for me is at conventions. Uh, the last convention of the year that I am doing is uh, this month, the Dragonsteel uh, Con. And I don't think there's any tickets left. They opened up 2,000 more tickets a week or two ago. And I think that they're sold out, but I'm not sure. Um, uh, but then, yeah, uh, if you check my website or my newsletter, you will get to see other conventions. And I always love to talk to people at uh, conventions. So please come and find me and I will uh, find me at a convention. Don't come find me at my house, please. <laughs> but I, I, I will happily talk to anybody. Um, and then, of course, all my books are online. Uh, most of my books, with one or two exceptions, are all on Audible in audio. In fact, several of them are audio originals, uh, like the Zero G books and Ghost Station. Um, and so they are wonderful recordings. The Zero G books are full cast music and sound effects. It's like listening to a TV show with your eyes closed, only even cooler than that makes it sound. Uh, and then of course, uh, my books are online in ebook and they're in available in print. And I've got like 19 books out right now and working on some new ones so i'm easy to find perfect thank you so much i appreciate your time hey thank you thank you for listening to the troy podcast please subscribe like and share with your friends